Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Indie Elixir podcast. My name's Carter Bryden, and it's been quite a while since I've talked to you. Uh, I think the last episode was actually in June of 2018, something like that. So I guess I owe you a, a little bit of an explanation there. And basically, uh, this isn't something that I would normally talk about on the podcast, uh, but I think that there's a lot of um, editing that goes on when people talk about their lives and what's going on with them um, when they do things like podcasts or they blog a lot or anything like that. So there's a lot of personalities out there that you probably follow who you're not getting all of their life story. And so I don't need to really go too deep into mine, but um, essentially I was in a long relationship for about 10 years and that ended last year. Uh, I'm totally fine. Everything is good. Um, But that was one big change that was happening um, after that happened, I recently moved cities. Uh, so there's just, there's been quite a bit going on, uh, in my life and I felt like I needed to slow down on some of the side projects. I needed to take a break for a while and just live my life and kind of enjoy things and figure out, you know, what I was going to do next. So now that I've, I've kind of got my feet back under me a little bit in that way, um, I thought I would get back on the podcast, and I thought that I would, uh, you know, kind of pick back up on the side projects and the indie work and stuff. So, uh, you know, the main reason I I, I bring that up is I just, I want people to kind of know that when stuff comes up in their life, um, it's normal and it's totally okay to take a break for a while or slow down. It seems like all the stuff that you follow online, whether it's a podcast or Twitter or blogs or whatever... Uh, it seems like everybody's just always producing and going 100% and nothing ever comes up in their life, whether it's good or bad or just changes. Um, and I guess I'm just saying, you know, that stuff does happen. Things do change and it's totally okay to take a break. Your stuff isn't going anywhere. Um, life will go on. Your work will be fine. Um, it's it's okay to slow down a little bit um, and, you know, take care of your own life. Uh, in fact, I kind of think that a lot of people think that if they don't get their, especially if they're doing like a startup kind of side project thing or something like that, they think if I don't get my idea out there fast enough, it's, I'm going to miss my opportunity. Things are going to pass me by. I'm going to be the guy who talked about the idea he had and never finished it or never did it. And I do think that it's really important to finish the things you start, but I also think that, um, it's very unlikely that the problems you'll come up against will be that you are too late. Uh, In fact, most of the time people are too early with good ideas. Um, You know, if you had a social network in 1998 or 2001, it probably didn't do very well uh, compared to things like Facebook today, you know, and Facebook wasn't the first, it was later. We've all heard that story. You know, it was the, you know, the 99th social network to come out or whatever, you know. And so I guess just don't worry too much about your ideas um, kind of missing the opportunity or whatever. They'll still be there. And if that was enough to ruin it, that idea probably wasn't going to work out in the long run anyways because it just didn't have enough substance or uh, traction to it or, or, you know, the kind of things that would help it live in the long run for you. So anyways, that's my uh, my brief aside about uh, taking a break and those kind of things. So 
what's been going on with me and, and what's new in terms of uh, indie work and stuff like that, well, the last time I talked to you, I had yet to launch Forte Chat. I have actually launched it. I've done a very, very quiet, soft launch. It's live, and I told no one. I've broken all the good rules about marketing and all the usual stuff. I haven't talked about it at all. Uh, and that part of that was just that uh, I've been a little bit embarrassed about the state of it. Um, I wanted to perfect it and clean it up and all those things that people do, which don't really move the needle, you know, on helping people use it or making it better. Um, you know, I'm just sitting there in my own kind of, uh, uh, vacuum coming up with the changes that I think need to be made and tweaking it here and there. And it's just, it's really not getting anything done. That's useful at least. So, uh, I just put it live. Uh, I guess I'm telling you now that it's live. So if you go to forte.chat, uh, online, you can, you can actually go there and look at it. You can sign up if you want, um, whatever you want to do. Uh, I know that the audience here, probably there's not a lot of overlap for the type of people that will want to use this. Um, so marketing wise, this isn't exactly like a great place to go and tell people, but I don't care. I'm just sharing, you know, the stuff that I'm making with you. Um, so there's lots to talk about since I put it live. Um, First off, I want to say that eDeliver has been awesome to use. That's what I used. I That's what I came up with for my deployment pipeline. Um, super easy to use. I have two uh, DigitalOcean droplets that I use uh, for this. So I actually moved my development environment onto a DigitalOcean droplet. I use Cloud9 to access it and do all the editing, and that's my IDE. Um, and so... They're identical droplets. The one, uh, the dev environment droplet is also uh, runs my staging and uh, does the build on there. And then it deploys it on a secondary droplet that is the live public one. Um, and so eDeliver has been awesome for that. It's been a lot of work uh, to figure it out and set it up. Although there's some pretty good tutorials out there. So it wasn't like I was just, you know, blindly finding my way. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there is, there's definitely some configuration, some setup and stuff, but nothing that's impossible, nothing that broke my brain or anything like that. There were some confusing points, but, uh, there always is whenever you're setting up anything new. Um, and so, yeah, I would totally recommend you deliver. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Um, I think there are improvements to be made there. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the information that it gives you back when something goes wrong. Um, but also eDeliver is doing the best it can a lot of the time because it's running other sort of like subsystems or tasks and things on the server. And so sometimes it just doesn't have that information because it doesn't get it back from whatever it's running. So that was one issue that I kind of ran into sometimes, but yeah, it's been really great. Um, there were, as usual on any project, there were bugs in production that didn't exist, exist in the dev environment. So, uh, for one thing, I used Nginx as the like the proxy or the public entry point to the server. Um, and I didn't know this, but by default, Nginx blocks certain uh, headers and certain characters and headers and things like that, which totally makes sense. I just didn't realize it. And so I had my Almanac, my event tracker that I, I built. Um, it wasn't accepting anything because the auth header for it had... 
I think it was an underscore or something like that, or or a hyphen, or I don't know. It was some character that it didn't like, and so it would just silently remove that, and so it never made it through, and and so that wasn't working at first, and that was really confusing to me because I knew that it worked in the dev environment. I, you know, it was working in the apps themselves. And so I just hadn't considered that it might be something else in the pipeline. Um, it's definitely much nicer to use Let's Encrypt with Nginx in front. So that was the main reason why I went with that. Um, I know I could just serve like a Phoenix app with its own server and things like that. But having Nginx in front just basically makes it nice to use Let's Encrypt when it renews it renews with Let's Encrypt. I don't have to restart the server. My server doesn't have to do anything with SSL. Like it's it's very nice that way and and really easy. And I think most people are at least sort of familiar with Nginx, or you know probably even more people are familiar with Apache. But um, I don't know. It took me ten minutes to set up Nginx the way I wanted to to work with Let's Encrypt and my servers, and then <laughs> maybe a couple of hours of scratching my head trying to figure out the why headers weren't going through and things like that. Um, but that was, you know, my own mistake and stupidity there. So, uh, no problem with that. Uh, another thing that I tried doing was, uh, I tried setting up my own provider account. Um, so on Forte, there's providers and consumers. Uh, so if you're a provider, you're a seller basically. Um, and, the way that it works is when you make a sale, there's there's no subscription cost or anything like that to Forte. Maybe there will be later on um, for like specific things if that's something that people would rather do. You know, maybe get a better a better uh, application fee rate or something like that if you just pay up front a certain amount. Um, but the way that it works is I have an application fee that for every um, every transaction that goes through. So if you make a sale for a hundred dollars. The default application fee right now is 7% plus the 2.9% from Stripe. So I'm, I'm basically just trying to get it to 10% because that's an easy number to tell people. And I, I don't think that that's like abusive or anything like that. Like most of these things, you know, you go on Udemy or, or any anything like that, and they're taking 30% or more. And I just thought, you know, 10% seems kind of reasonable. It's easy for people to do the math in their head and figure out what they want to make, you know, what they need to charge for that that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, I had tried to set up my provider account with a 0% uh, fee rate. And so in the database, there's I have uh, things to handle individual rates for each different person. Uh, and so I'd set mine to zero. But the problem was in live, uh, when I'm when I'm buying something on Stripe, uh, the response that they get back when I make a charge with that, if I have an application fee rate of zero, is they don't send back the app fee ID field at all. Instead of sending it back with with the usual thing that they'd put in, which is no fee, no underscore fee, uh, it just doesn't send that field at all. And so my app and my the schema for charges on my database didn't know how to handle that. Uh, which is a mistake on my part. And so it would charge the person and everything would work. They could still go and do their session, their video session. They could, you know, everything would still work, but it wouldn't create a charge row in my database, which is concerning. <laughs> um, and I guess technically, like I could go and I could pull the charges from a seller through their Stripe account ID and things like that. Like I could, I could get that information later if I had to, it wouldn't be the end of the world, but it wasn't working the way it was intended to. And 
Also, I have a refund feature uh, that sellers can use so they can just click refund right from the site rather than having to log into their Stripe and do it through there. Um, and because I didn't have the charge ID, I couldn't refund that. And so it was just, it was a whole like cascading weird problem that I actually discovered it through trying to refund something for the first time and it didn't work. But all of that stuff worked in my dev environment. And part of it was because I didn't have a 0% app fee rate in my dev environment. And part of it was because Stripe's API worked slightly differently. I think it does anyways. I think it works slightly differently when it's live with that uh, than the sandbox um, API. And so it was just, you know, it's one of those things where there's no way I would have found this out probably before it went live. And that was just, that's just something you have to kind of look for and people have to test out and it's going to happen once or twice. So, you know, live and learn. Um, but yeah, there, there were a few different bugs like that that were just related to the live environment itself. And so they're very hard to test in the dev environment. So yeah, uh, those were some of the struggles I went through. Um, it is up and live. I wish the site was better in, in many ways. Um, so, you know, going forwards, there's still many parts of the app that are embarrassing to me, mainly around UI and design. Um, I'd like to start improving those first, but I know that'll go a lot better if I'm basing that on real feedback rather than just my own tastes and what I think, you know, living in this this vacuum of feedback. Um, bump in the mic here. Uh you know, rather than just getting way too in my own head and changing the design five times without talking to anybody, I'm just going to let people use it and let them tell me what sucks <laughs> and make it better. Um, at some point, I'd love to have a designer work on some of the views, uh, particularly like I have a conversations, private messaging sort of feature, which <laughs> every app eventually develops. That's like an old joke that I've heard a bunch of times where, you know, every app eventually gets to the point where it's just a messaging app. Um, but that was something that I kind of felt like was needed from the beginning because there's a lot of stuff here where people won't necessarily want to put up money unless they can talk to a person first and ask them like maybe some specific questions to their needs. So I wanted to have that available. I don't really like the UI of that. I I was trying to find good inspiration for that. Um, and so I think it's okay on mobile or smaller screens. On a desktop though, it just looks kind of weird. It's almost like Facebook Messenger. If you've ever used the Messenger, like messenger.com, I think is the URL for that now, um, where it's just this full-on, full-screen messaging app for Facebook. And I don't know. It's I, I don't think that it works very well on larger screens. And that was the only thing I really had to base it on. So uh, I don't like it that much. I think someone could probably make it a lot better if I talked to a real designer. Um and there's a few other screens. I think the notifications right now are kind of a little bit wonky and I might change the way that they work entirely because I had to make a decision at some point. Do I make a notification system that stores the state of things when the notification is made or do I keep it dynamic and have it uh, update as other things might change in the database? So for instance, if someone books a session and later that session is canceled do i go back and look for the notifications and remove them do i just update the notification data itself like have it use a foreign key and then when it renders that it just pulls in the state of the session now and show it as canceled like there's there's considerations there so what i have now is it just 
keeps the state as it was when the notification is made. So if someone books a session with you, it'll say, hey, someone booked a session with you. And if they cancel it later, you'll get a different notification that says, oh, your session was canceled. I don't think that's the worst way to do it. It could be confusing, I think. Um, you know, if you open it up and you go like, oh, I have a session. And you go to look there and it, it doesn't exist anymore. And then you look at your notifications again. Oh, it was canceled. Okay. You know, but I think at least then people kind of get the whole picture rather than something that changes out from under them, you know, as they use it. So anyways, that's something that I'm kind of considering looking at again, uh, maybe rewriting at some point. Um, if anyone has any, you know, good systems and, and uh, methods that they've used to do notifications in the past in that way, I'd love to hear it. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at, at Carter Bryden, um, or you can send something to uh, uh, Carter at IndieLixer.com, anything like that. Um, so what else am I looking at doing going forwards? Uh, so I guess I'm always going to be doing refactoring. Um, that's just part of my development schedule now. Uh, and I put up specific things that I'd like to refactor as tasks, just like they were a new feature. So I just use, uh, I use a private uh, Git server and I use Git issues on there, um, to track new features and tasks and things like that. And I'll just put up. Uh, under a refactoring tag, um, you know, something that I want to make more composable or something that just could be cleaner, better, nicer to work with. And that's strictly like developer ergonomics. Like, can I make this better to use something that can be used in more ways or um, that will cause less problems in the future to change or extend or make it composable, those kind of things. So I'm always doing that now. That's part of my schedule. Uh, and it's just as important as features. And I think that people kind of think that they run the risk of over-optimizing working in that way. And I don't think that's the case because I have never run out of necessary refactors, I guess. Like that list always seems to grow faster than I can finish it. And so you know, what's a necessary refactor? Well, to me, those are things where I look at it and I go, I'm not going to want to work with this later if it stays the way it is. Like, I'm going to be frustrated by it. And if I'm frustrated by it, I'm less likely to pick it up and work on it next. I'm going to go and pick something that's more fun to work with or easier or whatever until it gets to the point where that thing is too important not to do it now. And so I want things to always be as fun and easy to develop and work on as possible because you get way more done that way and you'll get better work done, that kind of thing. So yeah, definitely uh, pretty important to me going forwards. Um, I want to do more tests. So there's nothing like going live uh, and going into production to realize that your test suite is woefully underprepared for what it needs to handle. Um, even though I've been working pretty diligently on that, I feel like. Uh, there's just a lot of things where I just, you don't know what you don't know until it happens. So um, definitely I'm going to be extending that. Uh, some of the most important things I found are really, really hard to test well. So for instance, I mentioned Stripe payments before. Um, you know, like that's something that's really hard to test in the dev environment because it will be different when things go live. Like there's just more that can go wrong there. And it's like, the dev environment is almost like that physics class where you talk about a theoretical question and it's in a frictionless environment and all that stuff. And then 
you go, okay, so could you use this math to say launch a rocket? And it's like, oh no, this is, there's a lot more that goes into that in real life. And it's the same thing in production, I find. Um, and then also just the front end in general. I have so much trouble testing the front end. Um, it's not nearly as much of my wheelhouse. It feels sort of like the front end is always in production in some ways, you know, like you can't, you can't reliably get the same results a lot of the time, I find. It's very hard to test for me, at least. And so that also means I feel like I need to beef up on my front-end skills. So part of that is, like, learning how to test that well. Um, and part of that is just that I feel like I've been slowly refining the back-end to be this wonderful thing to work with, uh, something that I'm actually genuinely, like, proud of for the most part. Um, and the front-end is this ever-growing hodgepodge of just things and techniques that I've tried out along the way, you know, like at some point I decided, oh, well, it'd be really cool to try and use a view component here. So I've got a view component there. And then later I decide, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm kind of stressed. Things are busy or whatever. And so I just throw some jQuery in there and it's like, okay, that stuff, like it all works great. And it's all pretty understandable because I don't get all that complex on the front end typically. Like I don't tend to build these things that are hard to reason about even if they are using like older, you know, technology that lots of people might think is gross these days, like jQuery, you can look at it and understand it right away. Even I can look at something I wrote two years ago and go, oh, well, that that's pretty easy to know what it's doing there. Um, so that's that's all well and good, but it's um, it's not cohesive. It feels like it was written over two years at random. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'd like to beef up on that. I feel like I need to pick a front end sort of stack, I guess, not really like a front end technology or framework or something and just stick with that. Um, big problem I have with that is that I don't like a lot of the unnecessary complexity that single page app architecture tends to add into things. Like it sort of feels like we tried to reinvent the internet on things that already work really well. Um, so that's why things like Phoenix live view seem very, very interesting to me. Uh, in fact, I think there are a lot of ways that, you know, returning fully rendered HTML over an API, either partials or, uh, you know, an entire page like turbo links might do, uh, could be a great alternative to fully single page apps or even the older traditional server side rendering. Um, I feel like this is something that has a lot of different opinions, a lot of different options out there and nuance to it. So I'll probably do an episode on it at some point and give my thoughts and sort of what I'm thinking. But I feel like I will probably do some horrible hybrid of something like that in the future. Um, I'm eager, eagerly awaiting a live view. I think that's going to be really awesome. And I feel like that will be a good starting point for that kind of stuff. But I've definitely, even in client projects, I've been doing some things lately where Clients want to be able to have a CMS like WordPress or something like that, but then they want to have these other really functional components, and I don't want to build those things in WordPress. I just find it takes me way too long, basically, like using the plugin system or working with entities like the post and whatever, and, and I don't really have a lot of interest in like really beefing up my WordPress um, you know, kind of acumen there. Um because I'm sure there are people out there that could just crush that stuff in WordPress and do great. Um, so a lot of the time what I'll do is I'll, I'll have a separate server that sits 
uh, either on the same like droplet or server or whatever, uh, you know, and it might be Laravel, it might be something in Elixir, depends on the needs. And I'll just return things over the API. And so, you know, I'll build like a front end component sort of thing on the WordPress site, and it'll just call this other API directly. And it's not doing any of the functional database kind of more complex stuff through WordPress at all. It's using this other server. Uh, and what I've started doing recently is just returning fully rendered HTML over the API to start things off. And it's been working like really, really well to the point where I'm kind of going like, how are there not more people doing this? Like this seems, you know, I can, I can send back a fully rendered view component with the data already in it. Like I, I don't need to do all these, I don't need things like tokens and stuff. A lot of the time I can kind of, you can get by with other things, um, especially if it's like an entirely public-facing website. You know, like for instance, one of the things is an, an estimator uh, for something where you put in a bunch of info, info, it sends it off to the server, sends back an estimate, and then you submit that estimate, and that gets sent off to salespeople and those sorts of things. Uh, and so I just send the uh, I just send back an uh, partial fully rendered HTML that has view stuff in it, like a view component in it or a view app, I guess it'd be more accurate. Um, and it's already got the data cause it was rendered, uh, in this case that was on a, a Laravel blade template, um, which is like an EX template in Elixir and just sending back HTML. Uh, and it works, works really, really well. It's, like the easiest code in the world to write and I've had zero problems with it and I get all the niceness of being able to embed that anywhere I want with all of the niceness of using server-side rendering stuff uh so I like that I'm probably going to talk about that more in another episode I'm going to cut myself off here on that because I feel like I could go for a while um and I would like to kind of do some research and think about it and get my thoughts out in a more organized fashion on that uh so besides Forte, um, I'm also working on another project, which I can't remember if I talked about this in the past now, because it's been so long since I've recorded. My apologies. Um, but uh, I'm working on uh, something that's uh, called Git Vendor. And so that's a, a premium Git repo marketplace. And I'm working on that with a friend of mine, James Doyle, who's uh, he's another uh, senior developer here, and he's... Uh, honestly, probably a much better developer than I am. Uh, and so, you know, I had this idea a while back and, and I just thought this is the kind of guy who would, you know, do really well at this and who would get this idea and want to use it himself. So anyways, uh, the, the idea behind this is that we love the way that we can integrate code from package managers, GitHub, other similar tools like that. Um, but basically you're always doing that with open source code, you know, like if you, if you pull something in with mix, um, you're probably pulling it in from, um, like the mix package manager hex, hex PM is what the word I'm looking for here. Um, so you're, you know, you're pulling it off of that, or maybe you're pulling something off of GitHub. If you're using like node stuff like NPM, you know, you're pulling it off of the NPM stuff. Uh, and we really like doing that. Like that's the way everyone develops these days. But the problem is, that there's not really any good solution for like premium or paid code or libraries, frameworks, packages, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that kind of sucks because 
I've definitely noticed that there's a lot of um, open source maintainers out there, especially in the last year, that are really, like, they're having a pretty bad time. People are pretty terrible to them a lot. And it's, it is a full-time job, it seems like to me. I don't understand how these people manage to have day jobs and a life and a family and all of these things and do this, like, insane amount of work to manage some of this stuff. Excuse me. And so I was interested in kind of coming up with a way that people could either sell source code or access to it. So that that's that's the key. So the thing is, we're not going to sell the source code itself because we can't really protect that. Like we can't, you know, people, if, if you're offering the source code to someone, it's out there and, you know, people could pirate it in so many different ways that we can't protect against that. Um, but what we can do is basically sell uh, licensing, um, access, and uh, easy integration into into you know people's development stacks. So what we're going to do is basically have a Git server uh, with a marketplace in front of it. Uh, if you are a seller, you can sell something on there. So let's say, uh, for instance, I built Almanac. That's a an event tracker that I use. And so I'm probably going to open source that at some point. What it does is it lets me rebuild the database or the data in any app to a certain point in time so that I can do analytics, you know, way back in time. And also I don't lose data. Like it's non-destructive. So when, uh, say someone changes their email on their user, I don't lose the old email. It's still in there somewhere. Um, and of course with like GDPR and stuff like that, you know, if someone asks me to delete their stuff, all I have to do is send through a thing and anonymize that where it basically just randomizes a string or blanks it out or whatever. And you know, that, that gets rid of their actual private data, but we still have this, this track record of, you know, what has changed in the data over time, uh, which is incredibly useful. Uh, even if I'm not sure what I'm going to use it for at first, I put it on pretty much all my apps now because, Later on, it's so much more useful when someone says, oh, hey, can we get this? And I can tell them, yes, we can. Whereas otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do that. So anyways, um, so for Git Vendor, uh, I I probably wouldn't put Almanac itself on there because it's pretty basic. I don't really think it makes sense to sell that as you know something that people would um, purchase and then integrate into their projects. Instead, what I would maybe do is sell uh, like really nice admin dashboards for it say so the problem with almanac is that it's really good and flexible and can take in pretty much any kind of event data you want to send it but to pull that out in a useful way and especially to pull it out and put it into a ui and in a useful way for a person you have to know how the app works like it's specific to the app itself usually and so i could build dashboards that are for specific use cases for that um, and I think that would be something that might be worth paying for that kind of thing, you know, where someone might want to go, oh, I have a SaaS app. I really want to be able to use Almanac and look back at all the data as it changes over time. And I can do all kinds of useful analytics with that. And, you know, I want to use it because it's a SaaS app with subscriptions. I want to know this information about subscriptions and users over time. I want to be able to look back and forwards in time and all that kind of stuff. And that's a dashboard that I, that would take a lot of work to build, and it's not necessarily something that's generic enough that would work for everybody, but it would work for some users. And I think that's the kind of case where it would make sense to offer that as a paid package on Git Vendor. 
And so the idea with that is, so let's say I've done that, I've built it, I am selling it and offering it on Gitvendor. Maybe I offer it as a one-time purchase or I offer it as a subscription. So the subscription would be you can keep getting updates or downloading the latest version as long as you have access. And so if you stop the subscription, you know, at the end of the month or whatever, you would stop having access to download the new updates. You still get to use what you have. You just don't get the new ones anymore. You know, that's, I think that that's a pretty reasonable thing that a lot of people would be happy with. Um, cause you're not losing it. You're, you're just, um, you're just not getting the new updates. So, or you could do a one-off purchase and, you know, if you buy it, one time you just you get updates for as long as there are updates. Um, that would totally be an option too. And so then if someone goes and buys that, what they what we would do is we would give them um, like a URL that they can use that would include authentication for them to go and download uh, using like their package manager. So with Elixir, it would be Mix um, or... Uh, say in PHP, that might be Composer, or in Ruby, it's whatever Ruby uses for that. I'm sorry, I'm not a Ruby developer. Um, you know, but you'd go and you would put that in your, your .json file or whatever it is, um, and that would include the auth for it, and it would just work, just like it was a GitHub package or any other kind of package like that. It would just download and integrate, and as long as you had access, that would still work, and if you didn't, it would just fail to update that, or it more likely it would just return there are no new updates um, so that it wouldn't break your build process or whatever. Um, and easy as pie, just like using open source stuff. So that's the idea behind it, you know. Um, and I think that this is something that could be really useful for people who have open source, uh, you know, maybe they're open source projects, they're, maybe they're maintainers. Um, if you are, I don't know, I'm trying to think of, of an example of someone, I was going to say like, oh, maybe what if the Ecto maintainer wanted to offer a package, uh, you know, that, that is like the dashboard I just mentioned or something like that, where it's external, like it's, it's an addition to Ecto. You don't need it to use Ecto, but it's something nice that you might have. And it's specifically aimed at like business cases and things like that. Like that might be something you'd want to offer on Git vendor. People want to be able to add that into their, their, application just like they would open source stuff you don't want to go to like a site and buy it and then you download a zip file and you put it in there and when there's an update you have to go and get another zip file or something goofy like that like um for instance with wordpress plugins like yeah they have their own update system built into wordpress but that's specific to a framework you know um and i also find like a lot of time i've had clients and things that would buy a theme and then that has plugins in wordpress and then to get the new updates for the plugins, you have to download the new theme zip and then update that. And then, you know, it's like this whole horrible process. I wanted this to work on any kind, you know, it doesn't matter what your framework is. It doesn't really matter what your stack is. It works just like a package off of GitHub or whatever. Uh, so that's the idea. I'm hoping to help open source people maybe fund their stuff a little bit better. Um, you know, I'm not trying to get rid of open source at all. I've heard some people that I've brought this up with, they're kind of thinking like, oh, so you're trying to privatize open source and ruin the internet and all these things. I'm like, no, not at all. I don't want that to stop. I love open source. I'd like to contribute more to open source. Um, but I do think that it's reasonable to give people an avenue to sell extras and add-ons and things like that, or, you know, premium stuff that they would otherwise not 
release or open source at all, uh, which sucks because, you know, if someone builds something like we shouldn't have to build that again for every person that wants to do that same thing. It'd be nice if you could just buy it or whatever. Um, but also open source maintainers out there are getting crushed with work. And, you know, if they can make a living or make some money offering extras to their things, stuff like that, I think that's a good thing. I think that will increase open source rather than lower it, uh, you know, in the long run. So anyways, that's the project we're working on. I think that could be pretty cool. It fits in with my sort of um, my rules for projects that I side projects that I work on now, which are basically it has to help people work independently. Uh, so it fits in with that. And it has to not be like horrible and ruin the world in some way and make it worse in some way. So I don't think it would do that either. So I'm pretty excited about it. Um, so anyways, if you're interested, you can head over to gitvendor.com. Um, it's just like a landing page right now that tells you a little bit about it. And you can reserve a namespace. So if you want to have a namespace on there, you can reserve it now. And we'll update you as it gets closer to launching. You know, insert usual marketing speech here. But uh, yeah, uh, so if, if you're interested in that, go check it out. Uh, I think I'll cut myself off now because I've been rambling for a little while. I'm glad to be back. I'm planning on doing these uh, a lot more often. I say that every single time. I have no idea how often I'm going to do this, but... I'm going to try and do it as frequently as I can. My life has sort of settled down and normalized and stabilized quite a bit. So I should have time for that now. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm just excited to be back. So uh, if you're glad that I'm back, send me a message on Twitter or send me an email. You can get me on Twitter at Carter Bryden, uh, or you can send me uh, an email at Carter at IndieLixer.com. I'm psyched whenever anybody sends me anything i love it um you can rate and review this or whatever on whatever service you want i don't really care about that i i just do this for fun and i like talking to you guys and you know when you guys talk back to me it makes my whole week so uh feel free to get in touch anytime you want and until next time uh have a good day